Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm director of ECFR. And this week, we're going to talk about the broader geopolitical dynamics in the Middle East and North Africa region. We're going to look at who is filling the vacuum, which the US is increasingly leaving, how the regional players are reacting to US disengagement. And we're going to talk a bit about what this means for Europe. Is there a role for Europe in the region? I'm happy to welcome an all-star cast, all coming down the line from Rome, where ECFR is organizing its Middle East and North Africa Forum. First up is Abdul Khalek Abdullah, who is a professor of political science from the UAE. Also in Rome, we have Aliya Mubayed, who is an emerging market economist who specializes in the Middle East. And finally, back to the podcast once again is Julian barnes Daisy, the head of ECFR's own Middle East and North Africa program, also a senior policy fellow at ECFR. And they have been talking with lots of other people from across the region about the big picture, about how the, the Middle East is evolving at a time where there are quite big structural changes afoot. So, Julian, why don't you start us off with that kind of big picture sense of what the main regional dynamics are in the MENA region and uh, particularly focusing on on whether the perception is post their withdrawal from Afghanistan that the US is is uh, fundamentally changing how it's exposed there. Sure, Mark, and, and great to be back on the podcast. Um, so, look, I think we've been reflecting a bit on, on, on some of these bigger changes that, that as you say, are, are happening. And, and primarily, I think this relates to the um, slim but, but, but definite turn towards regional de-escalation and, and dialogue and diplomacy that, that we've seen emerging in the region over the last year or so. In some respects, actually, this predates Biden. This was a response to, to the unwillingness of, of partly the unwillingness of President Trump to back up his maximum pressure campaign. When, when the Israelis struck uh, Saudi oil facilities. But it's also, of course... So there's a maximum a, pressure campaign on Iran. On Iran, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and so they'd be putting them under immense sanctions and pressure, but then the Iranians lashed out and, and hit the Saudis and Emirati um, boats in, in the Gulf of Hormuz, and the Americans did nothing. And, and, and so regional actors started recalibrating and, and, and sensing a need for to, to, to find their own security dynamic and accommodation with Iran. So... It's partly about that. It's also about a decade of conflict and fatigue and, and economic problems. And uh, I think the sense is that, that, that we do see a shift now. The, the Iranians are talking to the Saudis. The, the Iranians are talking to the Emiratis. Um, but it's not just that fault line. You also have the Emiratis uh, talking to the Turks. And that's been a, another key kind of division point of, of the region that's played out to, to quite a destructive bent o- over recent years. And you see new, or the, 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 the kind of the seeds of new processes emerging potentially on Yemen, where, where the Saudis and the Iranians are, are taking part in an Iraq-sponsored dialogue. In Libya, you've, you've seen a de-escalation and, and regional actors joining together with Europeans and others to back a, a political process there. You see a new attempt at some kind of regional accommodation with Syria. So there's lots of diplomatic balls in the air, and I think that's what's, what's quite, quite different and, and, and in a sense of, of, of a big relief. But I think... Um, 
you know, the, 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 the clear sense, though, is still that these are very fragile and shallow for the moment. No one has made a strategic shift. These are about um, the need to find some kind of new way forward that, that is not quite so dangerous and exhausting and resource um, heavy on all of these states. So, so that's one of the things we've been looking at and just considering where and how the region is going in that context. I think the, the flip side of that, though, is, is the, the, the reality that even as you have this top-down effort by a number of regional states to kind of reorder and restabilize the region, you have uh, what is effectively an economic implosion from below. You have um, state collapse in Syria. You have Lebanon effectively moving towards state collapse as well. Economic, political um, implosion. Iraq has its own problems. Yemen, you know, Libya is still very fragile. So this this is the grave danger that, that the region faces, that even as you have this new diplomacy from the top, um, it almost seems like like the, the floor is being pulled from, from beneath the feet of these different countries. And, it, it, you know, can diplomacy do enough? I think it's a big question that, that we're trying to answer here. And how can it be supported? That's a great introduction, Julian. And we want to um, look at this both from the top down, thinking about the new diplomacy um, as the US pulls back and the role that that has created for regional actors, but also the necessity for, for, for dialogue, which you're talking about, but also from the bottom up, looking at uh, the danger of, of political and economic implosion um, and state collapse uh, right across the region. And then we, we can come to the role of Europe first. So maybe we can start with you, uh, Abdul Halek. Um, you come from the UAE, which has emerged as a sort of surprising uh, superpower um, in a lot of the regional dynamics in, in recent years, um, has been a, a, a place where, in spite of having a relatively small population, there's been a huge amount of very active diplomacy. And right across a lot of the different regional fault lines on the Gulf versus Iran, Gulf versus Turkey, um, in lots of theatres, whether it's Libya or Syria, but also uh, the Emirates have pioneered a new sort of geopolitical move by signing the the Abraham Accords in 2020, uh, which normalise relations with Israel. Can you explain a bit to our listeners what's driving this new regional de-escalation and diplomacy in the region, and and, and how it's seen? Um, in the UAE, which is one of the countries that in many ways had, had been most active across a lot of the, the, the different regional fault lines before. Well, yes, I think uh, the UAE is uh, rising as a regional power. It's on the move. Uh, uh, you could see UAE uh, uh, visible uh, all over the place throughout MENA area, Middle East and uh, North Africa. It's consolidating its network of friends and allies uh, from Morocco all the way. Um, on the west all the, and to uh, throughout Egypt and uh, in the Gulf. So the UAE is uh, is a regional power. Uh, you, can, you, see, you see it all over the place. And uh, what the UAE is doing even more is it is paving the way for the others towards this uh, momentum for de-escalation. And I think that's a very important role that the UAE is playing these days. Uh, it is the uh, bulldozer, if I may say so, paving the way for all the others to cross some thresholds uh, uh, into uh, a region that is less dense. So I think the UAE is playing uh, this positive role. Uh, and this is where uh, Julian was right. The main drive today is towards regional de-escalation. We've seen a lot of uh, 
positive uh, development, uh, a lot of uh, signs, and uh, and the mood, overall mood, is being towards to the escalate away from 10 years of conflicts and tensions and hotspots. So that is the main drive there. Where is it all coming from? Uh, I think uh, each country has its own reasons for it. Uh, if I may take the UAE, I think there has been a deep reassessment of the last 10 years. Uh, it has been uh, a review of uh, where are the gains and where are the pains and what needs to be done for the next years to come, uh, 2021 onward until 2030 and probably beyond. So I think uh, every country, whether it is Abu Dhabi, Riyadh, uh, Ankara, et cetera, are doing their own uh, review of what has happened during the last 10 years of the Arab Spring. So I think it is really internally uh, driven, first and foremost. Then there are, of course, the regional and the global uh, dynamics of it. However, as Julian have said, rightly, and I fully agree with him, this drive for de-escalation is still in the first five minutes of the hour. We still have 55 minutes to get to the real result. So let's be very cautious uh, and let's uh, hold on to being optimistic, of course, but cautiously optimistic, I would say. Uh, there could be a lot of bumps along the way. And so- what do you, where, where do you think that the road is leading to? Because, you know, if you go back a few years ago, we, I think we've all been in slightly... Uh, utopian discussions about regional security architecture and the idea of creating some kind of CSCE or OSCE for the for, for the Gulf or for the Middle East and 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 all sorts of hopes that one could learn some lessons from processes of trying to de-escalate uh, Europe during the Cold War um but uh you know that doesn't seem to be the way that these these talks are going it seems to be much more um messy piecemeal discussions between bilateral players sometimes uh, minilateral uh, formats i mean where is it going to lead to what do you think a, a kind of optimistic scenario for uh, for this road uh, probably a less dense region a less dense middle east a less dense gulf so i think that is the end result of all of this but i fully agree with you mark this is not there is no regional plan of a sort it's all Purely and simply bilateral so far. It's UAE, Turkey, it's uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran, it is uh, uh, Turkey, uh, uh, Egypt, etc. So it is pretty much uh, uh, bilateral. Uh, and uh, But once these bilateral who were at each other's throat uh, de escalate and try to, to come to their senses and uh, try to uh, see the benefits of it all, and there's plenty of benefit to, 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 to all of this. I think then maybe at the final result, during the next five, 55 minutes, we might see a different Middle East emerging. However, that's too optimistic as of now, because Middle East, as you know, is full of those uh, bad guys, full of uh, the regional tension. It is the one place that is the most unstable on earth, full of uh, uh, terrorist uh, uh, armed groups, non-state armed groups. Uh, uh, we have uh, history that is uh, that is there. That is not going to be easy to un- uh, unravel. So I think the challenges are big, but uh, I'm, I am, I think, uh, uh, of those who are optimistic, at least uh, we traveled uh, the five minutes of it, and it all is looking good at least in this early stage, Mark. So Ali, I'd like to look at the bottom-up 
um, perspective in a second. But before that, maybe Julian, you could come back in uh, as well because um, you know we've heard how everybody has an interest in de-escalating, um, but you know I suppose on what basis one de-escalates is the the big question from a Syrian perspective. If you're Assad. Um, it's a de-escalation on the basis of 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 having won a military victory, essentially, and and people pulling back from from the theatre and and you know giving up on the hope that that you'll be driven out of power. I suppose I don't know. It'd be interesting to kind of talk a bit more about um, on what basis this de-escalation happens, but also whether it really is in everyone's interest. Because, you know, ironically, in Tehran, for example, we have a much more non-Western orientated government that didn't get elected on the basis of a, of a return to diplomacy, but in fact, more the opposite. So um, is it you can is it realistic to expect Tehran also to be in favor of de-escalation? Or is, is it because um things have moved so much in Iran's direction in all these different theaters that that it can therefore cash in its chips rather than um escalating further? Sure. I mean, I, I think you're completely right. It's a very ugly piece that's descending on the region. It's not a, a, a an inclusive piece that's addressing the core kind of issues of instability and unrest that that, that, that have fed the last decade of conflict. So in that sense, it is so fragile and weak. And as you say, I mean, Assad is effectively now setting the terms of, of his kind of remaining in power in Syria. And as you say as well, I mean, Iran, has, you know, regional actors are effectively accepting its position of strength across the region. This is not a piece that's emerging because Iran is stepping back or because other players are, are moving back. It's a piece because, frankly, countries are exhausted. Uh, they need to move on. They're, they're consumed by the resources that have been spent on conflict. Um, so I think for, for the people of the region, first and foremost, it, it remains very ugly. Um, I think, you know, from a European perspective, there, there are also questions of the kind of order that this is imposing on the region. I mean, so, yes, um, countries are seeking ways out. But, but whether you look at kind of the, the order that could be emerging in Syria, where you see regional re-engagement re with the Assad regime, or frankly, differences, you know, in outlook between the likes of the Euro Europeans and, and, and even countries like the Emirates. I mean, they are not on the same page on a lot of issues in terms of, I think, kind of an Emirati focus on what, to some respects, could be a kind of strongman type of stability in some places. So these are all questions. Um, the Raisi administration in, in Iran has, has given nothing at the moment, whether on the nuclear deal, which people are trying to push Iran back into, or on the regional front, it's engaged in a in a political dialogue with the Saudis, but the the, the recent message from Saudis is is that basically the Iranians are giving nothing, and it's 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 a very shallow and 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 kind of thin dialogue for the moment. So it's incredibly um, weak, Mark. But I think the point at the same time is also that the conflict has been in such a dire, awful state for the last decade. You know, it's been consumed by conflict and and, and violence, and and the sense must be that. Any form of dialogue, any form of de-escalation is better than that conflict and could potentially serve to open up a pathway to start addressing some of these other issues, which up until now have just been consumed by violence. Violence has not produced meaningful reform, inclusive processes. So it's time to try another, another approach. And regional actors and Europeans look at this from different perspectives now, I think. But, but everyone, I think, is trying to use this um, to, to further their respective agendas. So we'll come on to, to the role of Europe a bit later on, but now maybe we can go to you, Alia, and look at it more from a bottom-up perspective. When I've spoken to Julian in the past, he's kind of talked about the Somalianization of the 
of the Middle East. And there's certainly a lot of countries which seem to be going through um, very, very tough times on the verge of economic implosion, state collapse. I mean, do you want to to elaborate a bit on that picture, um, looking at some of the, the, the most vulnerable countries? Sure. But I, um, I think it's extremely important to, uh, to, to have a broader look at really how how concerning are some uh, the, um, is the economic landscape uh, in um, in many parts of the region, uh, and 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 that uh, and that these concerns related to uh, socioeconomic grievances remain even uh, a decade after the Arab Spring, um, a potentially a key driver of um, of unrest and uh, and challenges to uh, to to um, to weak states uh, uh, in the region. But I think it's it's important also to put them in the context of the post of a post COVID world. I mean, I mean, the economies of the region are still are going out of of, uh, of the COVID uh, pandemic with significant scars that uh, that will determine uh, uh, their ability uh, to um, uh, to rebound or not uh, in the short to medium term. I mean, growth recovery in most of the region is still uh, very fragile, uh, um, except maybe uh, in some countries in the Gulf, uh, like the UAE and, and Saudi Arabia. Uh, debt levels and fiscal space across the region is uh, um, is in a much worse situation than two years ago with the high debt levels and, and, and large fiscal and external deficit. And buffers across the regions are much lower. Yeah, I mean, uh, and these are buffers that uh, ideally should be used to try to um, reinstill the, uh, and, and reinvigorate uh, this much needed recovery, particularly uh, um, if we are in a scenario of de-escalation, as as uh, Dr. Abdel Khalik and Julian uh, uh, said, so so these scars are here to stay with us, and and also let's not forget that even the region's economy is still under a, multi- a series of shocks in the short to medium term. Whether it is the supply chain shocks that is causing imported inflation and and particularly commodity price inflation and creating some uh, 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 social uh, concerns. Or uh, the um, uh, oil and gas uh, prices that uh, are worsening the uh, external vulnerabilities of oil importers, although they are <laughs> a boon for oil exporters in the region. But also, more importantly, is is really the global economic um, uh, landscape where we 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 are seeing a. Um, global recovery and the normalization of uh, of rates and tightening financial conditions, which in a region like the Middle East uh, will be quite challenging because this is a region whose external funding needs are only uh, um, uh, getting larger. And we are talking about uh, north of 100, 120 billion per year of external funding needs at a time where um, obviously um, those who have the money in, in, in the region uh, um, are also increasingly more turned inwards to face their own economic challenges, particularly um, the, the rich states uh, of the Gulf. And finally, of course, there are these structural, more of a long-term uh, um, economic challenges, whether linked to how do we uh, still deal with the impact of the, the refugees and, and, and their integration into the socioeconomic uh, um, uh, landscape, or 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 how do we deal with the energy transition that is being catapulted now and accelerated uh, globally? 
so all these are important uh, economic challenges uh, that creates a lot of uh, tension, even you could argue, uh, between uh, countries in the region. Uh, and these challenges, are, in, in my view, are exacerbated by the fact that we lack a uh, regional a cooperation mechanism, at least ones that function and that attend to these grievances where, where, where there are developmental funds or where there are um, uh, economic uh, cooperation uh, agreements. Uh, but also because of the uh, regional com power competition that is sometimes um, uh, undermining uh, the recovery or the allocation of resources towards more sort of uh, uh, developmental needs and rather towards security uh, uh, security issues. And finally, the entrenched, uh, I mean, governance and state capture, weak governance and state capture uh, that uh, that is is becoming increasingly more challenging for even uh, uh, donor countries, uh, which think at some point think that conditionality, uh, maybe um, a link to to external support, could have pushed some of these governance reform agendas further. But in fact, they are not, and this is why we see, for example, countries like. Tunisia and Lebanon um, uh, falling um, into crisis. So we are at, a, I think, now um, at a, at a crossroad because we are seeing the region moving at multiple speed in terms of economic uh, recovery and also levels of well-being. With, of course, the 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 the, the, the compact of countries like the Gulf um, moving much uh, ahead, and particularly in the Gulf, the UAE. Uh, uh, first, um, Saudi Arabia and and in North Africa, maybe Morocco, because of the of the solid policy making, uh, economic policy makings in the in the in those countries, we have the countries in conflict that will remain uh, challenging for 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 the international community, whether Yemen, Syria, um, and now with the state collapse in uh, uh, in Lebanon, and you will have the lingering uh, countries like. Uh, 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 those that are challenged economically, um, but whose large uh, funding needs would be very hard to uh, to help, like uh, uh, Egypt or uh, Pakistan or Iraq, and uh, and to lesser extent uh, uh, Jordan, uh, uh, Oman, and Bahrain, which already has a backup from its Gulf countries. So, so, so it's a combination of idiosyncratic stories that I think uh, we cannot talk about uh, one uh, one size fits all or one kind of uh, uh, economic stabilization measure. If at all, I'm more of an advocate that that these crises, whether the COVID shock, financial crisis in some countries like Lebanon and now Tunisia, would be an opportunity for transformation rather than only a stabilization a transformation akin to what we are seeing in some Gulf countries where we are rethinking the economic and financial models and moving towards comparative advantage and embracing uh, much of the progress that we are seeing elsewhere in emerging markets. And how real is that? Because it's an amazing picture that you're telling of these completely mm -hmm. different situations from the Gulf countries that are reinventing themselves for a kind of post-carbon future. And then mm -hmm. countries like Lebanon, Syria, uh, Yemen, which are, you know, basically facing total state collapse and, and, and you know, at the other end of the spectrum. Maybe we could just talk a bit about those two extremes before going back to Julian to talk about, about Europe's role. Um, on the, in terms of the transformation, how real is that transformation? Because you know they've been talking about this for for a very long time. Uh, a lot of the the um, things that we read show that there'll be at least another decade or so before decarbonisation becomes very uh, serious, and and oil and gas are so cheap to extract 
compared to other parts of the world that that you could imagine Saudi Arabia, you know, still uh, managing to 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 benefit from a carbon economy longer than many other places. Um, how real are these transformations now? Um, no, absolutely. I think uh, we would be, uh, I mean, uh, naive to think that these processes are 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 just a. Uh, 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 pressing the button and uh, and 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 what I'm saying is that it's the trajectory and the 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 road traveled already um, uh, since uh, the uh, shock the the oil shock that happened in 2015. We have seen a significant transformation in in economic policy frameworks across the Gulf. I think if you look at at least fiscal policy in most of these uh, uh, of these countries and in particular in UAE, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, but also most recently in in Oman. We are seeing um, a, a rethink of the size of the state, uh, 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 introduction of, um, uh, of uh, revenue generating uh, um, uh, uh, policies, whether uh, um, mostly still indirect taxation, but for example, in the case of Oman, even income tax uh, is being uh, uh, pushed forward. Uh, so, so, so the fiscal and financial model uh, is uh, evolving uh, to try to reduce dependency on uh, oil revenue gradually, but that's not going to be um, immediate. And we are seeing progress in terms of share of, of oil revenues uh, um, in uh, the mix of, uh, of resources uh, being used. Uh, the economic uh, diversification uh, will require, in my view, a change in other uh, kind of policies, in particular, uh, the existing uh, currency pegs that uh, remain a cornerstone of stability in the Gulf. But I think at some point in time, they will need to be revised maybe once uh, fiscal deficits are more under control. Um, and also we are seeing structural reforms moving ahead, whether the business environment reform, uh, the labor market reforms. Um, now, obviously, as I mentioned, UAE, uh, Saudi Arabia are more advanced than Kuwait and um, uh, and other countries, but but we, we are seeing clear progress. Um, um, but it's just... Uh, uh, we are still at the beginning of the road, definitely. And what about the other side of the the equation? Yeah, I mean, do, yeah, in terms of the, you know, how worried should we be about these very very weak states? You also mentioned some of the political implications of of, of cost of living going up. You know, we saw the Arab uprisings a decade mm-hmm. ago were, were very much sparked by rising prices of basic um, commodities, which um, uh, which which people were were facing in their in their everyday lives. Are we likely to see a lot of political instability in the years ahead? I I don't think it's much about political instability as much as it is uh, uh, countries being challenged to uh, to adjust uh, uh, more quickly uh, than they used to. But but clearly, I think the biggest challenge uh, lies with 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 raising economic productivity in most of these countries uh, um, uh, and also reducing the vulnerability uh, uh, to shocks. And can a country like Egypt, obviously external or Pakistan or or uh, um, these are countries where external funding needs will remain very, very large, and and having credible uh, reform programs uh, will will be essential to uh, mitigate the impact on uh, on inflation and on um, uh, and allow to to continue able to fund uh, uh, social safety nets uh, for uh, for the poor in those uh, large uh, countries. In Iraq, however, um, I think the problem is more 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 acute because. Uh, um, Iraq did not uh, do what other oil exporting uh, countries did, i.e. Uh, try to uh, enshrine uh, 
uh, try to embark on, on, on a rethinking of the size of the public sector, uh, reforming state-owned enterprises and uh, reducing subsidies and the wage bill, like we are seeing, for example, in Oman or, or, or Saudi or, or Bahrain. Uh, Iraq is could be a problem if we have another bout of, of lower oil prices. And then you have the countries uh, like Lebanon, where it is uh, more about the political economy. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, the, two years after, after the crisis. Uh, it is the kleptocracy that has been uh, uh, sabotaging and, and, and uh, uh, obstructing uh, uh, reforms uh, and pushing the cost of adjustment by, uh, to, to the population through hyperinflation, and socialization of the losses and de facto haircuts on, 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 on people's savings in, in a collapsed banking system, that is to blame. And therefore, we have to always uh, look at, um, at, uh, at what is driving economic decisions or, uh, 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 for that matter, lack thereof or sabotage of, of the proper credible uh, policy framework that is needed to deal with such an acute crisis. Okay. So we've covered quite a lot of ground already. What we haven't talked about is, is what this means for Europe. Julian, do you want to tell us how you think Europe fits into all of this? Well, I, I think it means a huge amount for Europe. It, it, it's, if, if the region can move away from conflict and can start talking again, um, that can only be critically kind of important and a positive step given the kind of spillover effect of, of regional conflict. But at the same time, if these economic problems don't get addressed, um, then then problems will, will emerge in, in, in new forms. And, and whether that's kind of migration or new levels of conflict or internal unrest, I don't know. But, but you know, this is a region that still matters for Europe immensely. Um, but I think the problem is, and, and you can ask Abdul Khalik about this, you know, to what extent are the Europeans seen as serious actors in the region? And, and you know, this is a, where there are diplomatic openings emerging now. This is led and, and, and directed by, by regional actors themselves, and the Europeans aren't relevant. And nor are the Europeans succeeding in, in interjecting themselves in, into some of these economic questions. So I think you know, there's a real question for Europeans as the region reshapes itself and, and struggles with new challenges. To what extent are they going to recognize the, 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 the kind of necessity of, of a more serious, realistic um, approach to the region? You know, this is no longer about transformation and Europe doesn't bring a lot to the table. But there have to be areas, whether it's on the diplomatic front or on the economic front, where Europeans can make important but notable, I, I think, kind of inputs to, to try and ameliorate the situation. But, but it's... It's a hard ask, Mark, and um, you know the, the challenges remain immense. And I think it, it it is a process that is now being led by regional actors who very much see this as as a moment for them to sort out and address their own issues. And often that's not going to align with what the Europeans want to see happening. So, Abdul Khalek, um, what do you think we Europeans should try and do? What do people in the region want from Europeans? Julian was talking down the the, the prospects of of Europe playing a big role, but there are certainly some European leaders who hope to play uh, a large role. Emmanuel Macron was uh, in Baghdad for the recent uh, Baghdad summit when people were were talking uh, from across the region. Um, he flies to Lebanon quite a lot. Is that a, a real role that he's carved out for himself, or is this just um, uh, symbolic politics from from Paris? Okay, well, uh, I think uh, there is a, a bit of. Britain still there. There is uh, a bit of uh, France is still around. Uh, Germany probably is making some inroads. Uh, but then these are all individual countries' uh, 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 relationship to different uh, regional uh, 
powers. Uh, very little of Europe as Europe, as AU, is seen in the region these days, and the little that is seen is uh, unfortunately not as positive. Uh, I think uh, the perception sinking in that Europe is divided. The perception thinking in is that Europe is still uh, taking uh, uh, direction from Washington when it comes to Middle East and Middle East peace talk and uh, other issues uh, and even Iran. And the uh, perception is that uh, uh, Europe is uh, militarily weak as it has always been and when it comes to places like the arab gulf state where security is the top priority there is very little that europe can uh, contribute as collective as nato as powerful uh, uh, military I, so i think overall uh, my assessment is uh, europe is not uh, uh, seen in a very positive uh, uh, the view of, of europe is not necessarily positive we probably going to see less of America, more of China, but uh, no where uh, Europe is to be seen. Can I just the- ask us a little side question? I think we have to do a separate podcast on it because we're running out of time. But Iran um, is obviously one of the key factors in terms of the geopolitics of the region. You know, you talked earlier about how there's much more discussion about it, but that was an area where Europeans through the negotiations around the JCPOA played uh, an important role. JCPOA hasn't been mentioned in our entire podcast so far. Um, How does that fit into this bigger picture? Look, dealing with Iran, we are the closest countries on earth to Iran. We've been dealing with Iran for the past 3,000 years and more. And we've been dealing with all sorts of regime changes in Iran. The latest is the Islamic Republic. One thing stands clear for us. This is a neighbor that is difficult, that it's more difficult by the day. Number two, in all of our dealing with Iran, Iran is a puzzle to us, the, the countries closest to Iran, let alone to you guys, uh, uh, 50,000 uh, kilometers away. So Iran is going to be a difficult place, difficult uh, 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 country to deal with and to comprehend and to uh, settle with, whether it is the uh, current uh, Iran or whether it's the Shah of Iran, etc. Iran uh, is is uh, a neighbor as difficult to us as Russia is difficult to you guys in Europe. And Mark, if, if I could just add one thing there, I mean, I think from a European perspective, um, look, maybe the deal will still be done. There's a lot of kind of efforts on the Western side to, to make it happen. But what's quite interesting is, you know, under the kind of Rouhani administration, the JCPOA was always seen as a kind of potential platform for more missiles, regional stuff. And I think what's quite interesting is maybe you get a deal with Iran on the JCPOA now, but from a Western perspective, that now probably becomes a ceiling. It doesn't, it doesn't serve in the same way as a, as a platform for wider negotiations. You get this, you bag, you bag it, but don't expect to, to get anything else from the Raisi administration. And and, and on the on the other side, I mean, th- there's a real question mark about what happens if it all collapses, because then you're going to see sanctions being reimposed and, and, and new kind of pressure being exerted on Tehran. And obviously, there'll also be big questions there about whether and how regional players continue a dialogue with Tehran as potentially pressure increases from the likes of, of the Israelis and the Americans. And we don't really have a sense of a viable plan B there yet. So I think, you know, these are big dilemmas coming up on Iran in, in the period ahead. Okay, well, it's been fascinating talking to the three of you. Um, unfortunately, we have run out of time for the the kind of substantive discussions. Um, maybe we'll have to come back 
and talk a bit more about uh, about what Europeans can do. Certainly, I like to have a separate podcast on on Iran. Um, uh, so, Julian, we better organise that soon. But um, there is one thing left to do on this podcast, and that's our bookshelf segment. You want to start with me, do you, Mark? I have, I have to confess, I, my, my reading habits are, are not great at the There's moment. No... And, you know, I would love to find space to watch the new James Bond, if nothing else. But I, I have downloaded a book on my Kindle, Black Spartacus, um, the epic life of Toussaint Louverture, who was, um, I think, a, 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 one of the, the kind of leaders of the slave revolt in Haiti. I know nothing about this story. I know nothing about the book, but it's a, it seems to be a fascinating story and, and the book has got rave reviews. So um, I'll come back to you on that, Mark, in terms of what it tells me. Right. I, I just saw the James Bond movie and it was great. And it's sad that we're not going to see more of uh, James Bond. And maybe there is a lady called uh, WW7 and uh, it will be nice to see how she fits in. But I'm reading a book uh, by Christopher Davidson. It's about the Gulf, and I'm still in the uh, early uh, ages of it, so I'm not going to make any critical comments on it now. Great. And what about you, Elia? Well, I'm also very bad, running very badly on my reading habits. It's, it's just that I have too many things to read about what's happening in those economies. But uh, um, but obviously, I'm uh, uh, I'm 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 really uh, sort of just trying to um, to read the. Any analysis that help us understand how do we go out <laughs> of uh, the, uh, how would the economies in a post-COVID world would look like? And here, there's a lot of things to to, to read. I have nothing specific to highlight. Sounds like fun nighttime reading. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm uh, I'm going to the other extreme. I've been reading um, Sally Rooney's latest book, Beautiful World, Where Are You? Which is a uh, uh, um, very uh easy to read and uh she's a great storyteller and um uh is much recommended this doesn't distinguish me very much from the rest of humanity i i think half of the fiction readers in in uh, the anglo-saxon world are reading sally rooney at the moment anyway it's been wonderful talking to the three of you if people have enjoyed listening to this podcast please do write about us on your social media pages or ours and above all give us a, a positive review and a five-star rating on whatever platform you use to download the podcast on we'll put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast as well as including it in the show notes which we have on the platform but for now from Abdul Khalek Abdullah Alia Mubayed Julian Barnes Dacey and myself Mark Leonard it's goodbye the researcher of this podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and the editor is Alessandra Thompson 